0: Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. I'd like to welcome back Rishali Saha, qualitative research analyst. She works at The Diplomat as a risk intelligence professional, a visiting fellow for the Stimson Center, and as a researcher for the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers. Her studies include a master's degree in international relations from Jadavpur University, And uh, just wanted to welcome you back to the show, Rishali, thank you so much for being here. Lastly, my second guest is Dr. Indu Saxena. Indu works as an interim director of the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers, a board member at the American Political Science Association, where she specializes in international security and arms control. Her studies include degrees in global affairs and political science from Rutgers and Rajasthan Universities. A warm welcome to you, Dr. Indu, and thank you for joining in today.
1: Thank you, Thomas. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: If a war were to break out over the next 10 years in Taiwan, keeping in mind that China may feel emboldened by Russia's actions in Ukraine, uh, depending on how this turns out, what role might India play in that context? Indu?
1: Yeah, actually, I see that India's policy approach from neutrality or Proactive neutrality. So uh, I uh, assume, and I believe that uh, it will be the same if the China uh, and Taiwan's uh, uh, tension and conflicts takes place. Uh, I don't see that uh, India will change and will take the side of Taiwan and uh, uh, and they will uh, condemn the China in whatever. Uh, the ways because uh, look, the aggressor country they are just taking these war as a military intervention. They are not taking that uh, as a military operation. I am sorry, it's, it's a military operation. Russia just termed is as a military operation. It's not a war for the Russia, right? And uh, when I, I, I go back in history the myanmar coup Chin- china termed it as a cabinet reshuffling not that a coup so that was the point that what they are making and india already cleared it that the territorial integrity and uh, sovereignty of the country uh, that will be it should be the priority and international law uh, and uh, the UN, according to the UN charter, that is what the India is uh, taking the, uh, the, those instances in every statement, what the uh, what the UN uh, representative, uh, India's representative in UN that is what is making a statement or based on those UN charter and international uh, norms and rules that India is following. And the case may be like that in in that scenario that you presented uh, like uh, for uh, right now i can i can just uh, see the this picture in my optics and maybe there there may be some other things that uh, uh, we need to uh, f- catch up or follow up on the in the events
2: so uh firstly i think uh china taiwan contingency will be qualitatively and quantitatively very different from what is happening in russia and ukraine So this whole reason of U.S. involvement in in the contingency. Right now, of course, we're seeing that the United States has gone out of its way in terms of sanctions, military aid to Ukraine. But if a Taiwan uh, contingency was to break out and if there was a war, the United States would definitely be more active in the conflict. And um, right now, I see China is analyzing in many ways how the international community is responding. To um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It is looking at uh, the cohesiveness of NATO. It is looking at how US allies are responding, how their partners are responding, and whether they are willing to sort of incur the costs of imposing sanctions on Russia. But I'm also a little worried in terms of whether at all this is happening or not, because China has invested a lot of amount of resources and energy into building the narrative peaceful rights. So whether it will um, let go of that and threaten its relations uh, in Southeast Asia is a big question to me. And as far as India's involvement would be concerned, uh, I do agree, of course, with Dr. Sastana, that it's contingent on a lot of factors and that this passive neutrality or proactive neutrality rather is going to be the way forward. But I also feel that its relations will be more determined uh, in terms of how its economic relationship with Taiwan has evolved, what is the extent of it, how is its relation with the United States? And I think most importantly, it will depend on the military activity, like uh, in India itself. How, what have been the developments uh, in the maritime sphere specifically? Uh, in its current state, I don't see India engaging much, much in the Western Pacific sphere. But if we do, uh, you know, reach a pace of military modernization, naval modernization we may be involved uh, in the Western Pacific
0: more actively. Let's suppose, playing the devil's advocate here, if you will permit me, but let's suppose that a a war or a conflict does break out in Taiwan and the world is even more divided among two camps than it is today. And India chooses perhaps a more values-based approach to say this is a violation of the UN Charter of human rights and this is clearly forbidden and we will stand against this. And China's response to that might be to apply economic pressure the way that perhaps some observers might think it has done in Sri Lanka. And But it applies this towards Indian markets and towards Indian clients. Do you think that might change India's attitude and persuade it to join China's, uh, let's say, preferred solution or preferred outcome or even join China's side in a conflict over Taiwan?
1: Uh, look, Thomas, that you uh, like uh, this. Your question is like just uh, the extreme. That, uh, but still, I'm taking that. First of all, but Ruchali said that uh, um, the United States will take part or participate in any in some way in the Taiwan and uh, China conflict if it happens. But uh, but I uh, uh, have different opinion on that. That uh, um, because United States uh is still stick with this one china policy so as the united states states with the one china policy so it's not going to be a uh, participate directly and now in the ukraine crisis that you can say that uh, arms and weapons that will be supplied and it's already started that that the united states started supplying and uh, giving the arms uh, and weapons to uh, taiwan to uh, to protect its sovereignty and uh, um, uh, from any aggression yes that uh, the another scenario that it goes like the uh, the islands in the eastern that the uh, south china sea there is some disputes over there so the the countries that have like Philippines is involved there. The, there is some dispute with Philippines with the Japanese islands where the Japanese Japanese has the uh, acquisition there. Like they claiming that this is in the Japan territories, but where China claims that that is is in the in the Chinese. So that will be the another scenario that that we can see that that it's a war is coming to like as a, as a third world war because people were uh, like the. Uh, international experts were also expecting this Russia-Ukraine war as the third world war. But like we are, that the, it's, it's we are saving from uh, ourselves from that war. The maybe that the reason that the EU and NATO they're stepping back, uh, not taking the Ukraine in the NATO, and uh, and um, uh, the United States is not sending its troops, but sending its weapons and arms, and that can, that can be the case and when we talk about the economic pressure maybe india's uh, self uh, we are not co- we can't compare the india's position to sri lanka not at all like india is already india has already started working on the self reliance and atmanirbhar project and uh, maybe that uh, somewhere i see that if we, if india genuinely starts doing this work having said that uh, the uh, skilled workers in india and in the, the India's uh, and Indian diaspora, and maybe that can uh, India could pressurize China on economic front if India goes well with all these self reliant policies and approach. So uh, I agree, of course, India's uh, India
2: policies are preparing for a scenario where it does not have to depend uh, or does not have to be feel threatened by economic sanctions from adversities. But also, very realistically speaking, I do think that the scenario that you painted is—if uh, it's in the immediate future—well, China will also have to face the adverse consequences in terms of being completely alienated from the whole global economic uh, architecture. It still relies upon the United States, so I, I'm finding it difficult to picture how China will survive without the U.S. economy. So I see that as a very, very distant future, honestly, and a very distant possibility. And and, and but. The, but I think the more interesting uh, thing to note is that uh, how Russia and China are sort of engaging in this de-dollarization thing where they are sort of you know, shifting away from the global strip based architecture to bypass things like sanctions. So while I think that you know China maybe uh, will not go to the extent that maybe be blocking of trade with India, whether if China is in a position where it can impose sanctions, I think it's, of course, students to recognize that the Indian economy will be very, very badly hit but I also see countries, not just India, but around the world, developing uh, these self-reliant measures, and we're revisiting the whole concept of globalisation as we well. want it. It's a very tricky world that we're living in, and but countries are arming themselves um, in a rhetorical sense, so to speak, to face such scenarios.
0: Thank you. There is much talk of the Indo-Pacific, and it is today one of the most discussed uh, strategic arenas. Naval power, maritime trade, regional disputes come to mind. But why is less attention given to airspace and extraterrestrial theatre, Rishali? We've spoken previously about these two theatres in a previous podcast. Have you changed your mind about why these two are not as discussed, and uh, do you think they should be given more attention?
2: Well, uh, I disagree with you in terms of uh, the extraterrestrial space because I thought is cooperating on space. We do have a working group. It's very incipient, of course, but these are things which will take time. Uh, If you look at Indo-Pacific in itself, the region is in a a flux. Like countries uh, diverge over the very definition of what constitutes Indo-Pacific. There are a lot of hurdles to um, cooperation on these uh, areas, and specifically talking about airspace and uh, space domain, they're 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 very sticky areas. Like countries need to reach that level of comfort where they're able to sort of, you know, talk about these things and the relations among the countries in this region are still growing. So I do see that in the agenda in the future. But before that, there are more immediate concerns which needs to be addressed. There are concerns in the maritime domain which need to be addressed and obviously prioritized. If it's primarily a maritime sphere. But uh, I do see cooperation growing in this region, and I do feel that countries will come together to cooperate, even in the aerospace and uh, the outer space
1: domain. I agree with what Rushali said, that uh, uh, there is a cooperation uh, going on between the uh, airspace and the outer space as well, because like, uh, uh, you know, that uh, what... uh, we are just, I'm writing a article on the integrated deterrence. So like that's the concept that's given by the uh, Defence uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Lord Astin. So like what is uh, integrated deterrence is that uh, to combine the all powers over there to deter the, uh, deter the adversary. So it's not about the, the one domain, but it's also include the cyber domain and the space domain as well. So, so uh, the uh, Quad partners and uh, the Indo-Pacific partners, they are working on that, that integrated, that, the combined domains of all uh, to deter the adversary yeah, and to uh, make it establish a rule-based order uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Just add to that as
2: well, uh, in terms of like, if we look at the Indo-Pacific and if we're talking about a security, security perspective, China's dominant in the maritime sphere, whether it's in terms of its military like PLA, the Navy power or commercial power, I think that is the most immediate threat in the industry before anything else. China is the biggest container ship manufacturer and uh, just like it produces 96% of containers and a slowdown in production has halted almost uh, uh, like the global shipping industry It's created a huge crisis. So these are the areas which really need to be addressed before we go on to more advanced areas of cooperation and I think maritime domain du- awareness is uh, one area which would uh, sort of serve the immediate uh, security interests of all the countries concerned in terms of combating a Chinese presence uh, in the region.
0: I think one thing that's striking about this conversation which I've has it, been sort of boiling in the back of my mind is that the questions perhaps that i've presented are a bit extreme with the, you know with a potential war in taiwan or a little bit dark you know with going on in ukraine and the security sphere but i think if i can summarize a lot of the reaction that i've been getting from dr indu and yourself shall has been quite a positive outlook that say tom you know these are quite extreme uh, far off in the future they're distant they're not likely to happen and perhaps you might correct me here but it seems as if india's future is bright and optimistic. And you both agree that good years are ahead for India, and I hope that will be the case. And in the spirit of of following this message, perhaps India's relation with China will also be growing and cooperative and peaceful and keep getting better and better and more and more intertwined in the future. To that end, and to finish our conversation, a bit more of a long-winded question that combines aspects of philosophy and history. But the historical experiences of being empires, which are way more ancient than Britain or the United States, both China and India, the history of the Silk Road and the spread of Buddhism, among others, from India to China, does this allow for China and India to find common ground and perhaps a stronger bonding opportunity in the future to realize we're both ancient empires, we've gone through many world orders, we've gone through many changes, and Do you think that's going to be a spirit of friendship rather than animosity in the near future?
1: Buddhism started in Nepal and Lumbini, and then it spreaded in the other parts of the the greater India, what we call that at that time, and the Tibet, the mainly what we call today the hub and the the lama's uh, monasteries, have is Tibet and the Southeast Asian nations, uh, they are the, the uh, spots of the Buddhism and uh, not China. So yeah, I I, I take it that China uh, many people, they, they, they practice the Buddhism in China as well. So, but like uh, uh, I would say that uh, Confucius is more prominent there uh, in China. So that's about the philosophical because uh, I have been a philosophy student. I read the Indian philosophy and Western philosophy too. So it's a very interesting question for me. And then uh, let me take my uh, answer a bit longer here. So we are just, uh, your question says that uh, India China could converse on Buddhism. No not at all, that uh, Xi Jinping's ambitions is doesn't match with Buddhism and uh, the and the CCP's agenda, but it's not like Buddhism teaching, like they say the based on nonviolence that we saw in 2020 Galvan face of very recently. And uh, what Buddhism talks about that noble truth and eightfold path. So that's not, we see that is very idealistic what convergence what can i see that was on the economic and trade and the partnership on that one but again now india is taking its navigating its policies and dr jessinger and the other um, uh, top official says no business as usual before we we just we talk normal our ties on the borders so maybe that's that is like going more tougher uh, in the coming, uh, in the coming time. But still, I'm hopeful that, uh, that these ongoing talks shows and ensures uh, to avoid the conflicts to uh, the future conflict.
2: So Thomas, my short answer to this question will probably dampen uh, the optimistic tone that we have maintained throughout this conversation. Because I'll be honest with you, I don't see India-China relations going back to the normal that was there previously and by this of course uh, I refer to the Wuhan spirit which had animated discussions on uh, India-China relations prior to the Galwan crisis and that is very interesting there and I will bring in my optimistic note here by saying that I think that this role the cultural ties, civilizational ties had a very very important role in developing India-China relations to the extent where they were animated by the Wuhan spirit. And very interestingly also, uh, when she and um, Modi met at Mahabalipuram, like it was not in Delhi where generally we meet, but it was a coastal town in uh, southern India. And that available literature has shown that it was the Pallava kings who were uh, there long back. And they did have trade and defense uh, ties with China. And the kings there had agreed to help China uh, keep a check uh, on the growth of Tibet as a powerful nation during those years. And even Bodhi Dharma, which is probably uh, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but who's one of the most famous Buddhist monks in China, he's also believed to be the third son of the Pallava king. And there have been various studies also, which have shown by historians that they show that there were commercial links between uh, mahabalipuram and countries in china, like countries like china sri lanka southeast asian countries coins from uh, china rome have been found here now, it, because it basically acted as a trade center for the pallava kings so i definitely believe civilizational ties i have a very important role in fostering uh, bilateral diplomatic relations but uh, the galwan crisis has changed the status quo in um, india china relations And I've particularly noted that the public sentiment in India has changed very much when it comes to China. It will be very, very difficult to convince the domestic public otherwise uh, of Chinese intentions and Chinese perspectives. So I think uh, even if we do have convergences on many other, like I think there is a convergence uh, in India and China's position on Ukraine in the United Nations. And there will be such instances of convergences, but changing the public perception of China in India will be a major challenge
1: going ahead. Thomas, I will I will just make a brief uh, statement here, like uh, that. What uh, Rushali said that Mahabali and she's visit over there. That was a fantastic time at that time. India-China relations and um, we we uh, as an Indian and, and uh, as a uh, the global uh, in arena. Uh, was looking that 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 the um, hopeful picture of mahabali summit but after that we saw the crucial uh, uh, reality the harsh reality of galwan face off and we can't uh, that china's um, behavior is so unpredictable and uncertain and when we saw the hindi cheni 55 before 1962 war and then we saw that we we just India thrust into that war because India didn't have the weapon at that time. So that is the uncertainty of China's behavior can't uh, compel us to say anything like uh, in the future of Buddhism. But mm, there may be some cultural and uh, some other kind of uh, relation, engagements. And uh, what Prime Minister Modi said, said in his one of his speech that India may goes India has a cultural relation with Southeast Asian countries in African countries and in the, the Pacific countries but you know that India doesn't doesn't leverage those cultural relations into any occupation into any, any aggression. and that's what makes uh, India stand different from China. So we can uh, to, you can take the instance of Pakistan, you can take the instance of Sri Lanka in that. Like India goes in in the other parts of the world with the culture, with the with other relations, not have any intention to occupy the territory or just to make them compel on the on the on the basis of their economic and incentives. So uh, here I'm concluding my remarks.
0: I absolutely agree with you, do I see the same thing. India is a democracy. And this is perhaps a, one of the strongest things that sets it apart from, from China and certainly from Russia. But it's two two different possibilities that uh, I've gathered from your answer. So one between cooperation and conflict, because there's so much unpredictability in uh, not only in China, but in the world at large, the future will tell what's in store for India and its relationship with its neighbor. I think if the Ukraine conflict going right now has shown us anything, it is that, um, th- that the world is unpredictable and dangerous. But I think... India is going to grow and is growing with or without China's uh, friendship or conflict or whatever it might be. And I think so long as India is strong, so long as it has brilliant minds, such as the both of you, and so long as it's united as as a people and as a country, then surely it will continue treading that careful line very diligently. But with that, I wanted to thank both of you so much for joining us here at NYCINIC today. And of course, looking forward to having you on the show once again. Thank,
1: thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Karan. Thank you, Karan, of course. And uh, thank you for your kind words, Thomas. Thanks, Rushali.
0: And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, you check out our website for the latest episodes.